And there he was, Terence Johnson. Had I been a cartoon, my jaw would have hit the floor like an anvil, and my tongue would have uncoiled to his feet. He was the most handsome man I had ever seen. More than this, he was the most beautiful human I had ever laid eyes upon. Words are insufficient here. We've all been staggered in the face of something beautiful, and so stood I, gawking, blank-faced, unable to speak. He smiled, and it was as if the sun had poked its head through the clouds and cast a single, brilliant beam upon the shadowed earth. Terence stepped forward in one graceful stride and held out his hand. His fingers were long, fashioned for precise work, his palm a striking shade of pink. Hello, buddy. People tend to flinch when they see me for the first time. Their noses cave back into their faces, their eyes go wide, and their features go dumb as they struggle to comprehend my bizarre construction. I'm visually poisonous. Their eyes want to spit me out. This didn't happen with Terence. Not a twitch. His smile held fast. I looked into his eyes. They were almond-shaped. The irises were colored like tea leaves, and the whites shimmered, truly shimmered, like mother of pearl. I was a little off on some of my breath there. No, that's great. What you've just heard is the voice of Nick Yetto reading from his novel, his first published novel, and we're going to talk about that book and about Nick. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Um, I'd like to just ask, I know when I talked to you before, you said you always wanted to be a novelist. Why? What is it about being a novelist that is important? There's the overarching just idea that that's one of the great artistic accomplishments. You know, so if you are surrounded by creative people and want to be one yourself, even to this day that perhaps the importance of the novel has diminished um, in the society now, but it was always a a grand prize to to do, and it's and it remains so. People are still um, really strive to publish their novel, and um, but as a uh, as a creative kid, it was always my first best skill, writing. Uh, so yeah, it was just always the thing I wanted. Yeah, nowadays everybody wants to be a screenwriter, but a lot of this novel struck me like it could be a screenplay. You know, there's so much dialogue in there. Yeah, skipping ahead, um, it already is. Oh. But um, I don't Tell us jump. about that. Um, so you can see the blurb on the front, that the Jonathan Ames blurb on it. And that is, this is the best book I've read in years. Which is a nice blurb. <laughs> yeah, um, but, yeah, it um, is. A long story short on that one was that I had to reach out myself for those blurbs in the back. And Christopher Moore, the great comedic novelist, right, gave right. one. And Jonathan Ames is my sort of creative hero. Um, his and written, he has the television series Bored to Death. Yes, yeah. and the, he also did Blunt Talk with Patrick Stewart, oh, yeah. um, which was on Stars. Uh, so when I reached out to him uh, t- to request the blurb for the book, I didn't expect anything to come of that. I didn't expect him to respond, but he did. And at that time, uh, someone in Hollywood was expressing interest in optioning the rights to this book. Um, this is not to suggest that the book is any kind of success. Um, just that, you know, it's uh, the intellectual property of the book might be interesting to option and perhaps be used in some way. Um, I really wanted a, a crack at writing the screenplay of my own work. 
and uh, spoke to Jonathan Ames about that as we were really just discussing him doing a blurb for the book, Maybe He Could, Maybe He Couldn't. But a, a friendship did develop there. Um, I got to meet him in New York, and uh, for the past 18, 19 months, uh, he mentored me through the process of writing a screenplay. And that was one where when you're given that opportunity to work with really your creative hero um, and a, a person that just year, two years ago, my wife and I were watch, re-watching and watching Bored to Death again. And, oh, I love Jonathan Ames. I can't wait for his next show. Can't wait for his next book. Um, to have that become a, uh, a thing that now you're working with him. And you didn't, I didn't want to screw that up. So really went nose to the grindstone because I've never written a screenplay. In college, communications school, Ithaca, had messed around with it a little bit in classes, but that was just juvenilia stuff. So you're being asked now to have the possibility to work with this person um, and have him mentor you, and you don't want to blow that. So for every draft he got, I would work 16-hour days, and I would have written five drafts. <laughs> and I actually have a picture somewhere of the stack of them and like <laughs> the stacks of revisions. Um, but it would seem that I did an okay job because that's been the, a, a dominating thing in my life and just hanging above my head is that the, uh, the screen project, the screen version of this has advanced, and there's a major star attached. I will not mention who that is. Um, discretion is advised but that that's been the the heavy the heavy weight um how exciting because so much of it reads you can visualize it as you're reading it and there's so much dialogue in there that's just like the script is already written so yeah you know it it feels that way and some of it was kind of pulled directly from there but you learn how quickly um when uh, from a first draft of writing a screenplay of it of the thing that you of the book you wrote how much different structure-wise it has to be. Mm-hmm. That's a big learning curve. Mm. Um, and how, how, how hard scenes need to terminate, how they have to end on this upbeat, and pacing is, is quite a bit different. Um, but no, I mean, yeah, the, it was helpful that the dialogue portions in there, I think, are strong in the novel and could be pulled. You know, a lot of funny jokes. The joke writing is the hardest. Well, so tell us about how you develop the character. I'm just going to read. It's a first-person narrative from the point of view of Buddy Hayes. And he writes, or you write in his voice, I'm a connoisseur of the unwanted, a sommelier of deformity, a coveter of the unloved. I am forever chased by the shadow of my ugliness. In darkness, no shadow remains, and it's all diamonds. So... How did you develop him as a character, and why did you make this man who is small and has scoliosis and considers himself very ugly to be the center of your novel? I thought that that was an interesting, <clears throat> you know, an interesting main character, um, you know, sort of, and it's in the picaresque tradition. I think that the book is most strongly compared to Confederacy of Dunces, mm-hmm. and that and that's there. Although I hadn't read Confederacy of Dunces until. Maybe I was a couple of years into it. thing to remember is that I worked on this book for 10 years, but it wasn't all. The first eight years of that was me teaching myself how to write a novel and being like, oh, well, that's not working. You know, I read this. It does, this doesn't read like Vonnegut. Why? You know, and you, so you go back and you just keep tweaking until you get it. Um, so when it comes to Buddy, um, a picaresque hero is usually someone small and someone without a lot of power. 
and they have to find tricks and, you know, twists to get through and to succeed in life as best they can. But he's a little different than a lot of picaresque heroes and that he's actually not lazy. Um, like Ignatius Riley and the Confederacy of Dunces is a very lazy guy, but he's very active. Um, but when I started the, f- the first writings on this 10 years ago towards the end of the Bush era, um, which definitely shaped that period, then most of the book written in the Obama era, so that, that kind of shaped it and then kind of concluded in this era. Um, it's actually set in 2006. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, also, too, the choice of this handsome black man. It reminded me, did you ever read Leslie Fiedler's Come, Come Back to the Raft Again, Huck Honey? No, no. He's an American literary critic, and he traced through how, you know, European uh, works have males and females at their center coming together and american works you know have like huck and jim that's very a interesting white and a black or yep. tanto and the lone ranger mm-hmm. you know an off-white non-white person paired with a white person at the center and it's never to thought of it that very interesting tradition. but why why did you make terrence the so th- there's a couple of things there. When I when I started writing the book, Buddy was more of a just a kind of screwed up version of me. And really? Yeah, he was. You know, he was tall. I, I described him as a you know as a walking erector set because um, I'm sort of tall and dorky, um, and I, I was kind of struggling with the book. It just wasn't working. I, and I had him with his living with his. I wanted to do this kind of awkward character who's not doing well in life. But I'm just so surprised. Yeah. I mean, you're not ugly. <laughs> uh, and you are married with a wife and children. This is like doesn't seem like you. Well, no, it's, it's the struggle of the... I mean, everyone, I think, feels ugly at times. Um, and I wanted to explore that. I also wanted to explore sort of male appearance and sort of the um, body dysmorphia that guys can experience. Uh, but, they don't, but it's really never really talked about. But when it came to Buddy, there was a... Uh, I was writing him, and he was sort of my size. And and then I was listening to a New Yorker podcast with the cartoonist Mike Lupacek or something. He did the famous cartoons of George Bush where, if you remember, the New Yorker cartoons, where in the beginning he drew Bush as a pretty normal caricature. But as time wore on, it got smaller and smaller, and the ears got bigger. Yeah, sir. Get to the end, he was like a little, little rat. And that when I heard that, I was like, that's it. I have to take this guy and squish him and twist him. And then you get sort of more into the Quasimodo world. And you're like, oh, okay. And then with Terrence, you asked about... I've said but this, Esmeralda is yeah, a female yeah, yeah, Terrence yeah, yeah, is a yeah, male. Right, right. So, so, yeah. so, and then when you discover Terrence, well, who's, who's going to be the, the antagonist, I guess, in this? And you're looking at that area of, of Troy... And in this time, we were feeling really, when I started the book, everyone was feeling pretty hopeful about the course of you know, social relations and where we were at. It's almost impossible to recall mm-hmm. that feeling. Um, but I kind of, coming from that background and living, living down there in, in Troy, just in certain pockets, you'd hear that all is not well. And it just dawned on me as I'm working on it. It's like, yeah, Buddy would be a little racist, I think. That's what this guy would be. And then you struggle with that. Do I want to do that? 
um, what would be a thing that would really throw him off. And so the thing that I think is more important is that Terrence is super handsome, you know, very attractive, and Buddy feels very unattractive. And by all measures, he is unattractive. That's another thing that sometimes you can't gloss it over. And just so our listeners know how they come together, Buddy lives alone with his mother and his grandfather, who uh, is missing his legs (laughs) in need of a nursing attention. And Terrence is a nurse who comes into their home. Yep. So what what also interested me is as a narrative how you and it reminds me like talk about picaresque like Tom Jones you know you are you address the reader you <laughs> say yeah. several times in you know in the midst of whatever you say and reader <laughs> yeah i i one that comes to mind is there's the alluring librarian and he, she's wearing her pencil-thin jeans, and there's a rip, as there often is in these modern clothes yes, for her knees. Yes. And what do you call them? Uh, oh, what do you call them? It's very funny what you call them. Hold on. I is even it wrote the, it is down. Is it the fertile roundness of the kneecap yes, or something? Yes, that's yeah. it. And then you go on this whole little thing saying, yeah, the fertile protuberance, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And you say, I know, readers, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you go on this whole little sidekick about how a male knee could get together with a female knee and have all these little knees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just like um, this idea of like addressing the reader in the middle of the narrative. Where did that come from? Why, why do that? I'll say to people that will ask me you know, about writing that one of the ways that you can make it compelling is to sort of lean across the table or like at the bar and say, hey, something I want to tell you. I mean, think of the best storytellers in your life. And there's always that sort of eye contact, that lean in, come here, I want to tell you. And there's actually an aspect of it, like, I just told you what I'm supposed to tell you. Hey, now I'm going to tell you the truth about this. And there's just sort of a a comedic balance there and something to the rhythm of it. Uh, Also, it lets you sort of do an aside without doing the footnote. I was in, you know, David Foster Wallace is a huge influence to me, and he did a lot of footnoting, but I didn't think that, first of all, he, he killed it. So I would have loved to have done like little buddy footnotes <laughs> here and there um, because he has so much to say, and he just he considers himself this great genius. Um, but uh, David Foster Wallace sort of killed that. So, yeah, so it sort of does the aside. It is, it, it is Shakespearean aside in a way. Um, and... In the earlier passage I read, you said like these short little sentences. Well, that's a thing you try to do because when he sees Terrence, right? It's like heart stopping. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. And you echo that in the but, language. Yeah, bah, I love bah, that bah, scene. Bah, bah, bah. Um, so, yeah, with rhythms and stuff too. And, and some, so sometimes that turn to the reader, hey, reader, that'll be a break in the rhythm of the previous paragraph where I would have done a really ornate paragraph where he's really showing off. Mm-hmm. how bright he is, and then he kind of breaks it down and it gets a little bit more down and dirty. Just a comedic touch. Yeah, well, the things I love are the way you develop the relationships, particularly his relationship with his grandfather. And um, one of my favorite scenes is um, he's just noticed pubic hair. He's It's a flashback to his childhood. Yeah. And he can't talk to his mother about it. So he goes to talk to his grandfather. And the grandfather goes up to the bookshelf and, like, pulls out Lolita and Portnoy's complaint. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a literary answer to this very basic physical sort of 
typical parental birds and bees talk. But you said you drew on your own life for this. Did you come from like a very literary family? Is that something? No. No? Um, my parents certainly encouraged me to pursue things, but I was more a theater kid. Uh-huh. But, you know, so sort of working with pros and attended the New York State Theater Institute at, at Russell Sage um, and all of that. And uh, so in that way, Terrence is based on me too because he's sort of a thwarted artist, a thwarted performer who, where life got in the way. For me, more my own um, self-confidence got in the way of pursuing that. And it's also a hard life. Um, but uh, your question was... <laughs> About this, uh, this, uh, this incongruity of this 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid coming to his grandfather and reaching for Lolita. Yeah. <laughs> just, it, I mean, it's humorous, I, but then I stopped to think, where did that come from, you know? Oh, so I think that that was just sort of, I really didn't want to do that flashback. Um, because whenever you try to write kids, um, they always end up sounding lame. So, when, so writing that was really hard. Um, just because if you try to write back a, a child scene and try to write in child in a child's voice, it always is too... Huck, not Huck Finney, but you know what I mean? It's too cutesy. Too cutesy yeah, a lot yeah. of times. So I kind of wanted to kill the cutesiness of that with um, my grandfather. And the, the, the Papa character is very much based on my real grandfather, my Grandpa Hammer. Um, so the Papa character is a World War II veteran. Yep. And you can tell by his hands that he's a laborer. Yep. And that's interesting, too, because here's what appears to be a working class household in Ilium. Mm-hmm. And... Then at the same time, they have kind of these upper crust, um, not just the literary thread, but the garden tour yeah. <laughs> and the various. Do, do tell us a little about the setting, uh, how you came up with that. I live down there, and so much of it is that you just sort of absorb things as you go around, and they begin to hit you. You started. I started with the character, found Buddy, and then just started to sort of shape his life. And kind of try to picture what he would think and feel. And then, I don't know, some of these pieces just kind of clunk themselves on. I went on the, the Hidden Garden tour in Troy and saw, like, the sort of how serious people took it. And the competitive element. And the, com- and the competitive yeah. element. I'm like, okay, so what's the comedy in, the, in here and how would Buddy feel about this? And you really do spend, you know, and you've read the book. So he's not necessarily a guy you want to spend a ton of time with. And it was sort of nice to be, it's nice to be rid of him to some degree, because he was a figure in my head for so long. Um, but uh, you're just talking about the setting. Oh, and, and I just definitely wanted that whole family to be strivers. There was so much of that in there that of putting on airs. Um, thinking, because, yeah, because it's a, it, it's a reflection of Buddy's superiority in cases in his racism, this sort of smug superiority that he has no right to. You have not earned any of this. Um, was important and I thought comedic. Yeah, what you do with humor in the book is interesting because a lot of times you're laughing with the characters, but sometimes you're laughing at the characters. And it's kind of a knife edge. It goes back and forth. I definitely wanted to make him slippery. That was one of the things on my little notepad. Is so like Because you want to bring a reader through all kinds of emotions. That, that's at least my view of, of fiction. There are differing views on what the purpose of fiction is. Really, is there any purpose? Does there need to be a purpose for it to be valuable? I don't. I don't know. 
but the idea here is that you you buddy's talking to you or you're you're, you're watching buddy and you're rooting for him and you're and you like him and then all of a sudden he does something and you're like oh my god and you don't know if you like him and then he kind of comes back and ingratiates himself to you again and again he does it so that's i think part of the comedy of it which is just make him feel comfortable and then pull out the rug make him feel comfortable pull out the rug was it the right, right way to go i don't know um in hindsight, there's aspects of the book that, because I've gotten to write a screenplay, I've sort of had a second chance to do them. One of them is to give Terrence a stronger bite back at Buddy. Um, oh, because that's what I liked about the Terrence character in the book. Yeah. He just absorbs it all. He And that scene that you read us, the opening here, he just, what is it? He, he, his smile stays. He yeah. doesn't... He just absorbs whatever Buddy throws at him, <laughs> and he he keeps on being magnanimous, and he keeps on trying to be a friend. And I like that about him too. And I also just in if it's not on the page, the reader doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. So, or, or maybe they can find it between the lines. But um, in my mind, he, Terrence could see that Buddy was hurting from the beginning, and he wanted to sort of get him out of his shell. He kind of viewed it as part of his mission as a caregiver to the family to sort of help this guy who's clearly struggling with a lot of things. Um, yeah, the most, the largest to me was that Buddy is struggling hard with the fact that his grandfather is not doing well because that grandfather is such a figure mm-hmm. of stability. Yeah, and Terrence says that yep. in the first time they meet and have yeah. a conversation, and <laughs> Buddy diminishes it. I know, you see me as some grandson that needs help. <laughs> yeah. That's not who I am. Well, um, so when you... Construct a novel, and I think you said you're doing another one, too. Mm-hmm. It isn't like you draw out how the plot is going to be all the way through. You work from the characters and let it grow from there? or That was for this one. Um, I don't necessarily recommend it for anybody that's trying to write a novel. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I've, as I've been working on a second one, I started to sort of plot it more. And what's the second one about? Um, it's about uh, the greatest con woman of the 20th century. An historical figure? A historical figure, yeah. But Who I'm, is she? Uh, Ruth Drown. Gee, I never heard of her. Um, she was a disciple of Albert Abrams, the uh, the maker of, um, what do they call them? Sorry. Um, organ accumulators and sort of organ therapies. Uh-huh. And Ruth Drown uh, created this uh, device. She created quite a few devices, but the one that had the most impact was called Homo Vibra Ray, which was you send in a drop of your blood on a blotter. Uh, to their laboratory, to their laboratory. I'm doing air quotes um, in Los Angeles, and then she would beam healing to you through the through the air with, using radio. So she was a quack. What era was this in? Um, she started 19 late 1930s, so 1939. Oh my! Now, what interested you in her? Um, I came upon her because I was looking to do something with UFO nuts, and and I'm I'm a science fiction guy, and I love the idea of UFOs, and I want to believe aliens are out there but i was looking into sort of the ufology um and i discovered a gentleman who led me to her because this one ufologist found ruth drown very fascinating um and wrote about her um and that sort of brought me down that whole rabbit hole of looking into this and i've been researching that for a while So, but this isn't a biography this is a novel based on her i was thinking about doing it nonfiction. oh wow um but then have sort of moved more in the direction of doing a sort of a Hunter S. Thompson, 
Hunter S. Thompson gonzo journalism mm-hmm. thing, but flipping that and being like, I'm the gonzo journalist who will not will not explore these things. I will not leave the house to explore this. <laughs> I'm just going to go into the archives. And because the whole thing is about truth and untruth and marketing and the lies we tell. and I would say that's a very timely topic for this era. That's what I'm going into. I, 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 in the proposal I've written for it, that is being considered by someone. So tell us a little about how writing fits in with the rest of your life. I know you said some of this is autobiographical, and I thought, hmm, maybe the part about being a web designer, because you do that from home. But like, how, how do you fit this in with like, what do you do as a writer? Are you someone like Hemingway that you know gets up early in the morning and has a certain amount of time you spend, or how, how does that fit in? Um, I generally will just sit down, and when I can find the time between the kids and work, and then once I sort of get, I call it getting into the pocket when all else drops away, and then you can find if if you if you had started at a time where you have the time, you can find six hours passed. In your click, you're like, whoa. And then you have to come back out into the world. Oftentimes it's when the kids come home or whatever. And it do- takes another hour. And you're walking around stunned. And the book is still... And, and, and the book and the, the characters and stuff are still... You're still living that other life. Yeah, you can, I, I think it's in the right brain because I can actually feel them hitting me there. Like little, like little pebbles <laughs> as you're walking around. And it takes you a while to come out of it and sort of re- readjust to the world that we live in. Um, so is your wife supportive of this process? Sure. Oh, that's good. Although I think sometimes when I'm in the haze, she'll say something to me and, and like I'll be looking at her, but she'll know I'm not there, which I think is a maybe a common thing that people experience in couples and stuff. Yeah. I'm no. sure I do it to her and just, right. you know, yeah. blank stare. But uh, she'll say, oh, God, you're still in the book. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm coming out. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. <laughs> um, yeah. So did she like the book? Yeah. I mean, we've been together now 15 years. And married about 10, 11. So this, I was, was working on that book the whole... So she's been... It's, it's a threesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's been there So the time. book is dedicated to William B. Patrick, writer, mentor, friend. Who, who is he? That's Bill Patrick, the writer of Saving Troy and Roxa and other oh, great so books. You've known him all... all I was these. living in Troy, and I walked to the, to the library, the same library that Buddy... Goes to in the book. Oh, and that explains the stained glass windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that library. I don't think that there's a uh, there's a Dante uh, Tiffany stained glass in there, but I, that was the Divine Comedy was sort of a little better. But there is there is that stained glass. It's a yeah. printers. It's a I think printers. it's printers. Yeah, and that's well, a real Tiffany window. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, so so yeah. One day I walked in and I saw this board for a writers workshop. And I hadn't done any classes or anything since college, and I graduated 2000, so six, five, six years. And I attended it, and Bill was doing it. And that was where I wrote the prologue to the book, and we hit it off. And he kind of continued to mentor me and remains today an ear that I, someone that I trust and someone that I can call. And um, I love the guy, um, and he's been wonderful to me. So, yeah, the book had to be dedicated to him because... I couldn't have done it without him, and there were so many times when I was stuck, and he'd come in with just the, with just a great suggestion, and it would chew on that for a while, and then turn the corner on that. Well, it makes a difference to have a mentor. That's great. Well, um, also too, it interested me the relationship with the character Buddy 
and New York City, because in the early uh, chapters, um, the buddy character is pretending when he's getting business online that he goes into the city twice a month and he's created this whole kind of persona about himself that isn't real in order to get in this business online. But then the ending, the very last chapter is, you know, he's come out of his shell because he's become friends with Terrence who's moved to New York and, um, to reconnect with his acting career after his mother has died and um, invited Buddy to come who hesitates and isn't going to come. But there he is on the train uh-huh. heading for the city. So what what is the significance of New York in, in that novel? That's all about me, really. That's a, a, a theme for me because um, as a younger guy, I, I lived and worked in New York and I really wanted to do that. But I could never feel comfortable there. Um, I've got fam- family here and roots in this area. And I tried to to be there and, and to like to, to sort of – because I'm an ambitious person and I wanted to sort of climb that ladder and, and feel that success in, in a market like that. And I actually love New York City. Um, but it, it, I just never could get comfortable. And I think people experience that, you know – when you come from upstate or whatever, a lot of people, they love what New York offers, but you just can't feel that comfort. So move back up here to start work on a book, but also just because if I'm honest, I really couldn't cut it down there. I didn't feel comfortable. And so there was that thing. So of, that is Buddy. Yeah. That, so it's that aspect of Buddy where, yeah. and there's a lot more of that in there than what I feel now because now I have a family. And things so, but at the time there was this resentment with myself for not being able to feel comfortable about living in New York and really pursuing a career down there and things because I just have so much comfort and love up here. So there is a little aspect of the ties that bind there. Um, there's you can't be all things, and you have to make a choice. But sometimes those choices are hard. Yeah. Also, what about? Um Buddy's relationship to his clothes. He, he, you know, he'll wear a bowler hat out to mothers. Yeah. He'll, he'll always describe, you know, whatever outfit he's putting on in these, you know, terms that are very specific. What? Tell us a little about that. I just think that that's funny. Yeah. Right. You know, and yeah. just to sort of have him gushing about these clothes. But the thing to note is that he's really dressing like a man from the 1950s in a way, but sort of an eccentric from that time. Uh, so yeah, just the the eccentricity of his of his dress, the way he talks about it, and the fact that he kind of feels like he is an expert, but when he's judging, say, Terrence's clothes or the clothes of the people at Mother's, which he does, which he which he does, yeah, you know, he's dressed in like a cashmere turtleneck and in, in like a leather jacket <laughs> with a bowler hat on. So it's it's just funny, um, yeah, and just and it kind of building these insular little worlds that we do. You know, right. and Buddy, more than anything, he's just amplified. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to end with the epilogue because it's a mystery to me. Could you just unpack the symbolism there? Buddy's digging and he finds a diamond, which seems like, okay, maybe his mother dropped a ring kind of thing. But then he's digging and he finds, was it an emerald? Then he digs and he's digging and he's digging until there's a new world that opens. Is there more that we need to say about that? I know exactly what it means. Okay. And I've told people what it means to me. Okay. And they've universally said that is not what it meant to me. Uh, 
So I'm not going to tell you what, what it meant to me because I've found that when people ask me about it and I tell them what I thought I was saying, um, they're disappointed. Oh, come on. Tell so, us. Oh, tell us. So um, the mystery on this one I think is going to be and – and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be evasive or anything like that. Um, but I think that that's part of the joy of it um, is that – in the end, that sort of final piece, because it really does end before the, it, it ends before the epilogue, right? We know what that he's buddy is. on the train to New yeah, York. Yeah, he's on the train to New York and that life is going to go on. Maybe there'll be a sequel someday if, if I don't know. Um, but then that epilogue is really, that's, for, that's between the text and you. And, it, and, and that's, that's going to be my answer on it. All right. Because that, that happens a lot with written words, yeah. even in the news business. You write something that you think you've said one thing, and when it's out there, it takes on a life of its own, and it really belongs to everybody else. So. And, and I do think that it is a, a thing that I'm proud of it. I'll, t- I'll give you this on it. Okay. I was wondering how I was going to – I wanted to do an epilogue because Buddy mentions Moby Dick in the book. Oh, yeah. Moby Dick is a huge presence in this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but he has, but Moby Dick has this short epilogue mm-hmm. by comparison to how long the book is. And it's really, it's a thing where without that epilogue, Moby Dick, you'd be like, eh. But that epilogue nails it. So I wanted to do that. I was chasing my son in a stream. We were waiting in a stream. The mosquitoes were biting me. And that epilogue came to me in one shot. I took my phone and dictated it into my phone. And that was it. So that I'll give you that. Well, that's great. The modern writing technique. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank this you, has Melissa. Been fun. Yeah, it's been great.